Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Colton Boutique Wine Show. I'm your host, Senior International Director, Daniel Patterson. Uh, with me today is a very special guest, all the way from Australia. He is one of the most influential people in the fine wine world, and Barossa, famous for his collaborations with some of Australia's most exclusive vineyards, many of which we at Colson Boutique are very familiar with, as well as our clients and the fine wine world in general. Vineyards such as Two Hands, Chris Ringland, Glatzer Barossa Valley, John Duval Wines, to his very own vineyard, Dim Church. Without further introduction, our guest, a fifth generation grower, sixth generation on property, and one of the most important barons of Barossa and influential advocate for the Barossa Valley, Adrian Hoffman. Adrian, thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Um, just come back from a, uh, got on a long flight, so uh, here for a, uh, I suppose, a short stay coming across. Don't generally like travelling during the growing season because it's most probably the most important time to be in the vineyard this time of year, but took the opportunity to come across and uh, catch up with you guys. So right, thank brilliant. you. No, thank you too. And uh, I believe obviously we have this uh, tasting that we're going to be doing this evening, which should be very exciting. Very, I'm actually looking forward to it. Um, I really like, I suppose, showcasing wines from my vineyard and um, especially wines that I'm involved in with Chris. Oh, definitely. And you mentioned, is it just today that you've arrived in the UK? Or was it a couple of days prior? No, only arrived yesterday. So um, wow. I don't suffer too much jet lag when I'm coming over here. Generally, suffer the jet lag when going home. So I tend to find <laughs> if I'm going with the time zone, not too bad. If I'm going against the time zone, that's when I tend to suffer a little bit. So, yeah. Fair enough, fair enough. And how long are you planning on staying within the UK or even Europe for? Um, I'm only in the, the UK for three days. And then I've got another tasting, uh, another dinner in Frankfurt as well. So our, our distributor over there, Mr. Nothis. So um, oh, he'll be hosting me, so yeah. Lovely, and I'll take a be sampling some of those Rieslings you uh, you enjoy there too. Yeah, no, I definitely enjoy my Rieslings. Um, I still like those semi-sweet Rieslings, so they're very nice. Oh, yeah. Very good, very good. And um, for the people who may want to know more about yourself and your history, how did your journey and why begin? Well, I, I suppose I grew, grew up in the industry. Um, I, I've always lived on the property, but when I grew up on the property, it was quite different. Um, it was, uh, I suppose, a um, it covered all different aspects of agriculture. We had sheep, we had dairy. Um, grandma ran chooks as well. Um, we had apricot trees. Um, so that all sort of, I suppose, come to a head when I was leaving school because um, my, you know, my grandfather sort of said to me, "Do I want to be a dairy farmer?" And I said, "Well, the idea of milking cows morning and night for the rest of my life didn't." wasn't that appealing um, and we didn't have a huge amount of land either so you know the option to go bigger bigger with uh, cropping or sheep wasn't there either but we were very well positioned I suppose in the Barossa with where our, our um, vineyard was and the land that we had for vines so um, all the way through the 90s I suppose I grew the vineyard organically um, uh, so you know as people asked for more fruit um, we we basically um, grew those vines so we started planting in 92 um, the, the year I left high school Um, and we just just grew I suppose our Darwitz block and our home block Shiraz and as as we sort of took away paddocks um, I always ran a few beefy cows Mm -hmm. um, so a few beef beef cattle but um, then we ran out of paddocks for that as well so um, so I took I suppose I took the property from a modest 20 hectare to what we're now at about 140 hectare. That's amazing. That's amazing. Okay. And obviously, with you being a fifth generation grower, sixth generation of the property, as we touched about uh, at the beginning of the show, um, some would see that as a lot of pressure. Uh, Was there ever any 
doubt that you was going to continue in the footsteps? And was there anything else that you thought about, you know, doing outside of wine? I suppose um, because of the downturn in the industry in the 70s and definitely the 80s, my dad actually went into general engineering. Um, mm-hmm. So he done went into motor mechanics. So when I actually left, um, as much as we still looked after the grapevines, I suppose I was actually studying welding at the time. So looking oh, wow. at going into, I suppose, metal fabrication um, and shed building, which uh, was uh, my dad's business, Hoffman Construction. So um, we built, you know, built quite a few sheds uh, around the place, and we were known known for the quality of sheds that my dad built as well. You know, they, they weren't going to blow down in a thousand years, sort of thing. <laughs> I think you could build them in the tornado alley in uh, the US, and I don't think they would have blown down. They were always over engineered, so to speak. Yes. So that's most probably where I spent, I suppose, um, first four years after high school. But we still had to look after the vines, and we're still planting a few um, blocks slowly. Um, but then I suppose the bug really bit me um, uh, in '99 when I became young ambassador for the Barossa but I also studied at TAFE prior to that as well so um, done a level three in viticulture Um, so I suppose for me to get a better understanding of more modern day viticultural techniques because everything I learned I was learning from my grandfather um, and it was always quite it was good to learn from him Mm. but it was also good to learn you know basically learn from my grandfather about how things were done um, and why some of the things were done as well and um, he was most probably a very good teacher because he was he allowed me to make a lot of mistakes along the way as well so yeah. mistakes uh, you know it's things that he would have actually um, he would have learned through his course of growing grapes mm. but he was happy for me to do because you know you tend to learn more from what doesn't work than the what successes yeah. yeah correct so so and and that's and that's still happening to this day now so you're trying to experiment and you're always trying to think you're doing something better in the vineyard or something different but generally most of the time someone else has already has done it before yeah um, and you try and learn you know you want to talk to people within the industry and learn from their experiences as well. No, definitely. I think you make an excellent point there as well. In, in life, there is uh, too much focus on not making mistakes, but whereas school may punish you for making mistakes, life actually rewards you for the mistakes in which you make because you're always going to be learning from. Well, I, th- I, think that's, I think that's what puts you to the next level in whatever you're doing, whether it's grape growing or or uh, whatever, whatever um, I suppose, journey you are in life. Mm. You, you learn from your mistakes. As long as you learn from your mistakes and then you can achieve better, um, and and you, the outcome's better at the end. Um, it's always going to be great. You know, it's a bit like uh, with the cricket and stuff like that. Yes. You, you get it, get a bouncer, and you keep on swatting at it, and you keep on getting hit on the body. <laughs> Eventually, you learn you're going to actually have to hit the ball yeah, uh, if you true. don't want it to hit you. So that's true. Yeah. No, very good. And with with regards to that, of, of course, mistakes are always going to be there. Um, however, with the challenges that you've been faced with along the way, again, aside from once when you were challenged by, I think, uh, a great another great picker. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a female great picker, and it was to, it was the it was to get to the end of uh, end of the rows. I was sort of trying to motivate them a little bit, and I think it was, I was on a lose lose bet. I think um, at the end of the day, because um, if if they beat me to the end of the row, I had to uh, drop my on the on the bonnet of the tractor, uh, and if and if I and if I was to get there at the end of the row, um, you know, they they would do, she was going to do the same, and um, yeah, most probably not the most attractive lady to be doing it, but that's the way it goes. So we can, we mustn't grumble. That's for no, sure. No, no, that's right. But um, obviously, with, with regards to that, have there been any other um, general challenges that you uh, did face? I know you mentioned uh, initially uh, again taking the hectares from twenty hectares to over one hundred hectares must have been. Uh, quite taxing at the time. 
it, but, it's something because it, it happened organically. It wasn't sort of forced. We weren't going out and planting. You know, we've never had an issue with oversupply on our vineyard. People talk about oversupply in the industry in the 2000s. We we sort of didn't have that issue because we, we our fruit is always sought after. Yes. Um, some of the biggest challenges that we've got is, I suppose, um, mitigating against, um, I suppose, the, the changing environment um, that we're dealing with. Um, this year, you know, we're dealing with some extreme hot weathers. We had a we had a hot, hot um, a windy event during our flowering, um, which which allowed for a poor set. But in saying that, if we didn't have the poor set, we would have had to start dropping fruit on the ground. So each year's got those challenges. Um, you know, 13, 14 and 15 for us were very challenging years in frosted years uh, mm-hmm. in the vineyard. Mm-hmm. Um, we've spent a lot of money on our frost mitigation, for, but for us it's all about trying to, um, uh, I suppose for us, it's trying to mitigate against those risks. You know, getting getting extra water so you can actually supplement water the vines to make sure that they, they're healthy and green enough um, for frost to, you know, protect your vines during spring. So for me it's the challenges of, you know, how, how do we now, you know, that one hot day is sort of really put a bit of a dampener on this vintage from a grape growing point of view. Yes. But from a winemaking point of view, the winemakers are rubbing their hands together because right. they're going to be looking at, uh, you know, lower yield, yielding crops. They'll look at more concentrated fruits, okay. smaller berries, uh, everything that they like about uh, a good, great quality year. Yes. Unfortunately, I don't think the, quite the volume of fruit is going to be there that's going to be pleasing to anyone, right. uh, especially the consumer, because they, there will be a much smaller vintage, but the quality is going to be fantastic. Uh, okay. And will that normally then result in maybe slightly higher price? Or? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't we, it's not a trend in Australia. You know, if we if we were to try and compensate with pricing, you know, we most probably should be nearly having to triple the pricing of the wine, but you're not going yeah. to see that. Um, generally, we're, we're a lot more um, restrained in Australia when it comes to some of those better quality vintages. You know, we're, just, we're not just going to ramp up the price because it was a better vintage. Sure. Um, especially from, I suppose, Chris and my perspective as well, what, what we're trying to do is create something unique, something that's a little bit different that, you know, is going to last beyond the generations and we don't want to just ramp the prices up for the sake no. of it. I think, I think we've, you know, we, we with the Dimchurch and Hoffman, we set, a, set our price as, as a bit of a benchmark and I think um, we're holding holding that price there because I think, you know, they, you know, it is an expensive wine, but grow, the people that are buying the wine is getting value for money. Oh, massive, massive. When you consider the cost of you know, Dimchurch and Hoffman compared to some other wines from the new world and the old world, which similar quality, some are less, and they're asking for more in terms of what you're actually offering cost per bottle even though, yeah, like you said, it could be on the more expensive side. In the grand scheme of things, it's actually worth the money for the contents which you're getting. Oh, de- definitely when, you, when you're talking about Chris, who I, I, I deem is one of the best Shiraz winemakers in the world, and the attention to detail that I put into my vineyard and especially the parcels um, that go into high-end products, not, not, just, not just the Dimchurch and Hoffman, but, you know, the Torbrick Run Rig, the Glades Home and Ra, the, you know, the yes. Two Hands Aries, you know, all, the, all those super quality. And, and it's not all the same fruit. How how I grow for those different winemakers is quite is is stylistically quite different. Um, mm-hmm. The soil types that on it is different as well. But when it comes to the Dimchurch and Hoffman, it, it's really about going through the vineyard and tasting the fruit and seeing those very minute differences between the vines and, and between the fruit and making sure that we're getting the best. I think the best of the best fruit from my vineyard. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And with regards to that, actually, in your opinion, what does make Australian wine so special? And what makes your wine special too? I think what makes Australian wine special is what we don't have to do. Um, It's... 
It's very, uh, it's very interesting. You know, there, there are there are sites that are dry grown, and we can dry grow on a what I would say is a normal or an average growing year. Um, we we can do quite a bit of dry growing fruit in those years. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times we're doing supplementary um, irrigation, but we don't we don't have the same chemical inputs. We don't have the same inputs in, into our farm. You know, we we intru- we introduce a lot of um, organic matter, organic carbon. So you know, reclaim green waste from um, the township of Adelaide. They break it down into a compost. We put it in the Vineyard, um, so you know that helps with soil soil moisture retention. Um, the vines are just remain over, you know, healthy overall, yes. um, a lot healthier overall. So when you start when you start looking at, I suppose how it, it's more so the, the the little things that we do, but we don't the chemical inputs from a spraying point of view. Um, this year has been quite a dry dry year, so um, basically put on two post post flowering sprays, and we haven't done any sprays after that. Mm-hmm. But, but then we're still going through and putting kelp products on to alleviate the stress stress on the vines as well. So we've got those, um, you know, it's it's always trying to do work out what is the best for the vine for that, that given year and each year is slightly different on how we're going to treat those vines. And would you say that's more experience that then plays a significant role in, uh, you know, predetermining that or would you call in uh, other people to offer a second or third opinion? Oh, generally, I, you know, I'll always bounce ideas off of other growers. Um, it's, it's crystal ball gazing to a certain degree because you're looking at um, how far you're looking into the future is it going to be, is December going to be wet, is it going to be dry right. um, they, everyone was sort of predicting a dry season so you know you can, you, you, you have the you have it in the shed, you have the arsenal in the shed ready to go but if you don't have to use it well why use it yeah. and, um, you know, Chris's approach to winemaking um, and our approach to selecting the wines is no different, you know it's, it's what you don't do during the ferment it's what you don't do during the maturation process you know, people are, you know, people sometime are going in and topping up their barrels every month you know when we're topping up our barrels we do it twice a year we adjust sulfur, do it do sulfur checks and adjustments once a year as right. well you know you, we're not we're not trying to manipulate uh, what's actually happening we're just letting the wine tell us I'm letting the vineyard tell me what to do yeah. Chris is letting the letting the wines tell him what to do um, and it's very much a you know hands-off approach to actually produce the quality that we get it sounds sounds a little bit silly but if you're starting off with some really good products to start with whether it's the fruit whether whether it's the oak, yeah. Um, I think you know. I think you can make some pretty fantastic wines. And would you say like the, uh, the soil can also play a role, or is that just a, a myth? That's oh, it, that's most probably is. I won't. I won't get into it. The too. terroir. The, yeah, the, terroir. the, the terroir. I, was, I wasn't <laughs> going to talk about the terroir, but um, I suppose true expression of terroir is is the vines on their own roots. And you know, unfortunately, I know um, you know Europe, Europe and America they have to grow on rootstocks. So, um, and I've got. Roles where you know if if uh, I have to go to rootstocks, working out what best rootstocks we can use uh, in the Barossa, but at the moment we can plant a lot on our own roots, so you're getting a true expression of terroir. So um, I'm in a unique situation. Uh, my grandfather always told me, you know, when God created the earth, He dumped all the different soil types, you know, that it was left over out at Ebenezer. Oh wow! Um, because you know we've got you know two two kilometres within a two kilometre radius of my house, we've got seven foot sands. You know, we've got uh, red brown earth. Soil. Over red clay, we've got bisky soils. Um, we've got bisky 
over lime. We got limestone through it. We've got sandy loams. We've got creek gravel on top of hills with with washed quartz and ironstone through it as well. Wow. So you've got this myriad of different soil types, and I think that's how we can get so much complexity into the Dimchurch and Hoffman. We've got this mm. myriad of different soil types, and uh, every year is slightly different. You, you know, a general rule of thumb for me is a sandy loamy soil will, will produce really good fruit in a in a um, in a dry year. Yes. Um, your heavier soils, such as your biscuits and your clays, you know, they'll produce your really good fruits in those um, in the wet years um, because the soil really wets up, and in those in, in in those wet years, the sandy sandy soils just give that moisture to the vine too quickly, and you can end up end up with too much vegetative growth and a bit more shading. So you can end up with a bit of green underripe tannins and things like that as well. Mm. But on those wet years, um, those heavier clays only give up that moisture very slowly to the vine, so the growth the growth is regulated all the way through. So even on those wetter years, you can really produce some heavy concentrated wines. Yes. Um, maybe not 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 going into 2017. That was a little bit too generous. Right. Okay. But that's where we had to work a little bit harder and make sure we actually ripen the fruit on the vine. Sure. Um, and yeah, our I suppose our limit lodge um, Cabernet Matara because you know Cabernet really thrives in conditions like that, and we produced a mm. very special Cabernet Matara in 2017 as well. So that's one to keep an eye out for for sure. Yeah. Good, good. And obviously there's been, I think there's been more news which has come out today about the unfortunate circumstances surrounding Australia, obviously with the wildfires and what's been ongoing in more recent times, uh, loss of human lives, loss of hundreds of millions of wildlife, forestry, people's homes, vineyards and so on. In your opinion, is there a genuine issue with global warming, the likes of what uh, Greta Thunberg will talk about? And if so, you know, how can we make that change? I, I think everyone's got to do their own little bit. Um, I think my family's been doing that for generations already. So, you know, we, we've got sections of our of, of our property that we've actually created as nature corridors, so wildlife can actually move through it. Um, we, wow. I suppose, we 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 look at the environmental impact of what we do. Um, you know, it, I was sort of talking before about our organic um, organic vineyard, and our organic vineyard most probably uses slightly more. Water Water than what our traditionally grown, okay. um, you know, what our traditional uh, vineyard is actually uh, using. So, you know, is organic better in that circumstance because it has has a slightly higher environmental impact from a watering point of view, which is quite an important issue in Australia as well. Um, but I, I think really it comes down to the management of our natural resources as well. Yes. Um, you know, two hundred years ago, um, the Aboriginals would have lit a lot of small fires every year, mm-hmm. um, clearing out different areas, and you wouldn't have these big wildfire blazes and oh, things wow. like that as well okay um so you know it's it's now getting to you know people don't want um and it, it's a big issue doing these controlled burns um and you only get a very small period of time generally in sort of april and may to do these fires before winter sets in um and reducing of the fuel load in some of these areas just wasn't done and completed in time or they haven't mm. been aggressive enough to do it so then then when uh, you get a dry fire sparked on a hot day you get these mega yes. fires as well yeah um you know I'm not, I'm not definitely not a climate change skeptic. Um, you, this, the numbers are there to say you know we're increasing carbon um, into the air and things like that in, into into the air as well. But it's it's not fair to blame you know one country or another no. country that that's not doing not doing their. I think we're getting a little bit political now. But but for sure. me, I think if everyone can do their own little bit um, to help, um, you know whether it's just just recycling and that's where you know coming back to our compost that we're putting onto our um, 
um, vineyard, you know, using that, you know, recycled green waste from Adelaide, I think, you know, yes. that's that's us doing our little bit to help. Um, you know, we, you know, we haven't sort of done the numbers on what we're doing, but we'd be f- fairly close to carbon neutral on our property. I know that's a big credential for a lot of wineries to sit there and work out the numbers and be carbon neutral as well, knowing that, you know, when a bottle of wine arrives at your place, um, that, you know, all the, all the thought about the environmental impact and the carbon footprint of that product mm. um, has been taken in, into consideration. Yes. Okay. Okay. And on a more positive note, um, you know, the Australian vineyard tours uh, are legendary. They're up there with some of the best, if not the best. People speak about the you know, Napa Valley wine tours, the, the Bordeaux wine tours, the Rhone wine tours. However, if anyone was, you know, listening to this or watching this uh, and they wanted to come to Dimchurch Vineyards, what can they expect on a wine tour? Well, uh, we're, we're looking at um, actually setting up for basically a wine experience. So um, getting people on to actually give them a bit of better understanding. Um, I think just in grape gro- uh, grape growing in general, I think you know, there's a lot of myths out there about what makes good fruit and how good fruit is grown. Um, I think I think for me, we've, we've most probably, well, we've got multiple multitudes of different blocks. So we've got about 12 different blocks, but in with, within each one of those blocks, we've got different management techniques. And this is this is what comes back to the, you know, the 20 or well, 30 odd plus wineries that I deliver to mm. um, and the producers that I deliver to because they're all looking for something slightly unique and different but you know if they were to come out and have a vineyard tour you know I definitely always like to show them the elevation um, you know getting getting them up um, looking across looking across the valley and looking down the valley so people can understand um, this the, the Barossa Valley isn't just one valley. It's made up of, you know, I think several several different valleys because you've got the Lindock Valley, you've got the Greenock Creek Valley, you've mm-hmm. got the Barossa Valley proper. Mm-hmm. Um, we're most probably, even though we're the Barossa Valley proper, all our land actually flows out to the north. So we're okay. in we're in a little niche microclimate as well, and I think that's what makes the North Barossa so special. And then within Eden Valley, you've got Flaxman's Valley, you've got Eden Valley, mm-hmm. um, then you've got the valley valleys out towards McAlter as well, where you know Henschke's Hill of Grace is. In things like that as well oh, wow. so it's it's quite it's quite complex in the nature and for people to come out and explain to explain to them you know why the Barossa is such a diverse um, you know region and why we can produce the wines that we can with the diversity that we can I think mm. that's really in essence what I like to get through and when when you come on to my property you know I'll take you to that scene you know you, you basically it's silica it's like going to a beach okay um, and then, then then we'll go 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 to the next place where you've got where you can pick up the ironstone and the quartz and the, and the washed rocks from the top of a hill so because it was you know all, all, all the part of Barossa was at the bottom of the ocean at one stage and it sort of raised up out of the ocean. Um, but, you know, Australia's got very, very much ancient soils and, and what we're doing to protect those ancient soils as well. So, you know, my, my philosophy um, on growing fruit and, and you know, uh, getting that people excited about what I'm actually doing because when, you know, when I took on the property, you know, my, my, my focus was to hand it on to the next generation in Betternick and I've known, I know I've done that because I've got the numbers to back me up. You know, mm-hmm. the organic carbons in the soil I've increased by 0.5%, which normally takes a lifetime to do, and we've managed to do that in 20 years. And mm-hmm. the, the soils are only going to get better, and it's it's 
getting people, you know, getting people to actually understand that you're not you're not just buying a bottle of wine. You're buying into the philosophy of what you know Dimchurch and the Hoff- Hoffman wines Massively. are all about. Massively. And with that next generation, is that um, is that uh, is that children? Is that, are they cousins? Are they? My, my my thing is the next generation is giving opportunity to any young person that wants to do farming. Um, I think the dream of you know leaving school and becoming a farmer and owning your own property. I I, I think that's nearly non-existent now. You know, people are struggling enough to buy that buy their yeah. first house, not yeah. let alone buy a farm and a property. But um, for Dimchurch Vineyards, it's it's whether it's um, you know my kids or my nieces and nephew or you know the next generation of my workers to come along um, and and work on the property. I think you know giving people that opportunity um, going forward. Uh, my my son is um, doing viticultural operations at Tolbrick. So That's basic brilliant. basically the, the same study that I was doing nearly twenty years ago. Um, now he he's basically doing the same studies. But you know his plan is to come back onto the property. But you know it's good to go away and uh, find those experiences. And you know if he's wrecking someone else's vineyard, well that's, that's not so bad either. So. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> make a mistake elsewhere. Yeah. Not not here. Not yeah, here. No, I've made enough mistakes in my own vineyard, and honestly, well, you constantly learn and things like that along the yes. way as well. So yeah, oh, amazing, amazing. And as as a man like myself, you you love your aged wine. Um, however, obviously that can sometimes come at a slightly higher price if you're looking for a midweek drink, etc. Are there any uh, young wines, like young style wines uh, from a red or white varietal uh, that you enjoy drinking, say, every other day? And if so, what are the country or countries or regions that you prefer to drink younger wines? I, I think Grenaches, so and Spanish Grenaches, um, you know, if, if you can find some, you know, good Spanish Grenache and, and I suppose starting to look at more the serious type rosé so mm-hmm. you know people people that have um, you know going away from not having such a heavy red style especially during the summer months um, yes. but but for me um, Grenache and Maverde, um, you know, Mataro for us. I think, you know, looking looking at different varietals there, whether it comes from, um, you know, old world, old world, or even uh, new world. Um, yes. That's that's what sort of excites, excites me, um, especially the Grenache because I think it's such a versatile varietal. Um, but yeah, once again, you can't sort of, you know, getting into the winter months, you still can't beat Shiraz. So, uh, and the true. ageability of it. So very yeah. true, very true. All right, so now for yourself, you've sampled lots of great wines throughout your. Yes. Um, is there a bucket list wine? What one that's? I know there may be many, but one that sticks out. And you think I must try that wine before? Um, I, I reckon everyone talks about the. I think it's the ATT Chateau uh, Chateau de Kim. So yes, okay, okay. Yeah, I think because I, I still like my sticky wines, but I said I think value for money. I think people people underestimate the tawnies and and the sherries and the fortifieds of the world. Oh, massively. I, I really I really like I really like my. Um, uh, I suppose I've got a good fortified stack at home, but mm. you know value for money when you're picking up a wine that's you know potentially aged for fifty years in barrel. And you can pick Stunning. it up for you know 70 70, 70 quid and you yeah. know, that, it's that's just living history basically yes. in a bottle and and you know Sepultsfield do it very well because we've got the hundred year old and um, I was lucky enough to uh, get a bottle of the hundred year old um, at the Barossa auction this year and um, you know people said oh you're mad mad for buying it and I said well it's it it's a hundred hundred years hundred years old and it cost me you know six grand to buy the bottle and <laughs> um, it, it's but it can, you can lay it down for. Oh, 
a long time as well, though. That, can't that, it's, it's not going to. It's not going to go off. It's not going to. No. Yeah, it's not going to go anywhere. It's, no. It's going to. It's going to be the same today, tomorrow, and for the rest of its life. But I think that's that's something for um, you know, open it up at my fiftieth and share it with a lot of friends. But I've had the opportunity over the years to try you know some really fantastic mm. wines. Thanks to thanks to a mate mate uh, of Chris's Jürgen. So uh, wow. um, to try some of these really old Barolos and things like that as well. But that's something you, too. Yeah, yeah. That, that's something. That's something to behold. You know, you, you, you know, I, I think it was a forty eight Barolo that we had, and uh, it was it was it was as fr- nearly as fresh as what what it had been bottled. That's you know, brilliant. it must have been very tight, very compact wine when they actually bottled it. But you know, I think understanding and winemakers understanding what what needs to be done to create wines that are going to last you know lifetimes, I think is, is massive. Okay, Amazing. and on, on the flip side of that, what what was the one bottle that is uh, you've you've tried that was etched in your memory till now you can still taste and you're like this is why I love wine whether it's prior to really getting into wine or why it's been seeing should have been fully immersed in wine you tried it and you're like this sums up why I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah, I, th- I think what what really got me hooked on to hooked on to wine and aged wine was um, basically uh, 80, 89 Rockford's Basket Press, um, okay. and, ta- and tasting just tasting that wine. Um, and I was most probably uh, it wasn't most probably real old at the time. Uh, okay. It was mo- most probably only uh, it was most probably only 10, ten years old at the time um, when I actually tried it. But to actually, that was my sort of first wine. Um, you know that I sort of bought and collected and, and you know opened it up and go you know got me sort of hooked onto you know yes. looking at wines and um, I suppose my focus on especially when I'm looking at the wine wine companies that I'm delivering to whether it's a you know a Glatzer or a Cliffsling Ringland a John Deval or yes. a like it's a I look at what is the ageability of the wine you know why why should I be paying a premium for this wine yes um, and is you know am I going to be able to join in my later years or my kids are going to be able to enjoy it in their okay. in their years, and that's what I'm really looking for, look look for in a wine. Okay, okay. And uh, for yourself, do you have like any mottos or uh, mantras that uh, you live by, whether it be personally or from the professional standpoints, or is it just happy go lucky and just? Oh, it's a little bit happy go lucky, but it's generally go hard or go home. You know, okay. give it a crack. I, I agree with that. Yeah, you got you got to live you got to live life to the fullest, and you know you got to yeah you got to you got to give give it a decent nudge. So um, it's it's like I said, we've been throwing a few quite a few challenges in the industry um, just in the last couple of years with our yields and um, I suppose how you know how the, how everything's going in the vineyard. But my, my you know to pick yourself up and especially you know in 2013 we lost about 40 percent of our area to frost and oh. uh, you know, I, I said to Dad we need to do something about this you know we can't lose that much area and he said no no you'll never see anything like that because that was the sort of the first time we had a major loss of that that okay. sort of nature. And then the following year, we lost seventy percent of our area to frost. Um, and I just said to him, I said, "Well, this, this is you know, this is make or break time for us." So you know, we invested that the following year, we invested nearly six hundred thousand dollars into frost mitigation devices. Wow. And and he said, "You'll never see that again." And he thought I was wasting my money. And if we didn't do that, we would have lost eighty percent of our area to frost. And because we put in all this frost mitigation, um, you know, we have only we only lost thirty uh, percent of the area. So it was an you know, investment we, that yeah, paid off. An investment that paid off very much so in the in the first year that we actually put it in um, but then you know 
since then, I sort of vowed, you know, after that, I said within five years, anything that is on the what we call the lowlands of Ebenezer in the frost areas, um, I wasn't going to grow without frost mitigation, you know, even if it's never been frosted. So young vines that potentially never get frosted will get a frost fan to help protect the crop. Um, the next thing, you know, that we sort of done after the dry years of sort of, um, you know, 16 is basically so we need to get enough water. So we need enough water so if we do have these dry, year, dry years that we can actually water um, and uh, supplement the vines so we can actually get a decent crop and get the quality because um, it is very much you know adding the addition of water can actually increase the quality of your fruit because okay. your vines don't stress you don't lose the leaf on your vines so um, you know the, the factory that's produ- uh, producing all the sugar and, and all the flavours um, you keep that on the vine the, the fruit grows in a bit of shade um, so it's not fully exposed to the hot sun and things like that as well so to make sure that you've got that supplementary water there to grow the best quality possi- mm-hmm. um, possible you know it's very important as well so well, you know, it's all these, all these yeah. combinations. You got to, you, you know, it's not just thinking about one thing. It's, it's all, you know. I sort of say at the beginning of the growing season, you start off with one hundred percent capacity. Okay. Um, and and it's and you, you you everything you do after that just whittles it down. So yes. the environment helps you whittle it down. And all you're trying to do is create these one percenters all the time okay. to make sure you can get the best quality fruit. You know, you don't start off with nothing, and the things that you do is going to make it better. Yes. You start off with the premium quality, and then after that, you all you're doing is trying to get it as close as what you can and keep it close as you can to that 100%. So. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. All right, very insightful. Thank you for that. And um, obviously for yourself, we'll talk um, past and present. If you could choose your ultimate three dinner guests, who would they be and which three wines would you uh, choose to serve? Um, ultimate, ultimate dinner guests, I, I reckon I'll most probably um, def, definitely invite my grandfather So um, I, from, from, the, uh, from the past and I'd actually show him the wines that we're creating now. So um, he passed away in uh, 2010. Oh, so, so, so a lot of yeah, a lot of the wines and I, th- I think a lot of what we've created from the Chris Ringland from our vineyard he didn't get to see. So um, to uh, showcase, showcase those wines. Um, from the present, I most probably couldn't go past. Uh, uh, my mate um, uh, John Hughes. Um, okay. Yeah, so, but you would most probably have to go and uh, dig out some pretty good Rieslings or something. So we'd have to, you know, maybe go to the Mosul, um, <laughs> see, go, go see um, um, Ergon Muller or someone like that. Oh, and, wow. and uh, um, we had a great experience with him actually um, uh, uh, July last year. Myself and John actually got to sit in his lounge room and have a, um, I think it was an 88 um, uh, Oslo's that he pulled out for us I to try as well so, yeah, yeah, sitting in his lounge room with um, uh, Egon Muller so that was fantastic yes um, but uh, then and then I suppose yeah, future I reckon um, it'd be fantastic to uh, you know sit down with I suppose you know not maybe the son's generation but the generation after that and um, you know dig out some of the wines that you know I've made just now and actually have a try of those wines wow. um, to, and, and to see you know to see you know I've got, I've got great confidence and our wines are going to age for a long, long time, but it'd be fantastic Definitely. to, you know, have a look at these wines, you know, and and see see yes. how well they have aged. And you know, I generally say it's 
Um, I, when people ask me, what, you know, what vintages do you like? I generally tend to like the fruit from the more difficult vintages to grow for. So, you know, if you go back to you know 2013s and 14s yeah. uh, and 15 vintages, for me it'll be you know, 18 and 20 vintages as well. Okay, it's those years where you know 2010, 2012. You know, they're great vintages and made fantastic wines. But from a vineyard point of view, we didn't have to do a huge amount in the vineyard. Those wines sort of made themselves. Um, there was very little um, intervention that we could do but some of the work that we did in some of those later uh, in some of those more difficult vintages and see the outcomes and, and see some of those great wines from those more difficult vintages and things like that as well mm. um, yeah, I'm very disappointed that we most probably didn't keep um, some of our 2011 wines back because it was a very difficult growing season okay. um, and the wines were fa- you know the wines were fantastic wines if, yes. if, if it was a Rhone Red yes. um, but it was a Brossa Valley Shiraz that we're making and right. uh, yeah, it was it had all the classic characteristics of a classic, you know, high end Rhone Red, yes. and um, but yeah, it wasn't it wasn't the style of wine that we're actually looking at doing. But right. you know, two thousand, you know, you see the wine that we've made in two thousand and you know, um, sixteen in, in some of those more challenging years, two thousand and eight in a challenging year, and that as well. Yeah, to see the outcome of those wines, I think is fantastic. Okay, brilliant, brilliant, and a couple of uh, non wine questions, um, very basic ones. Uh, however, uh, what would you say is one of your all-time favourite films? Uh, Shawshank Redemption. So, oh, I love that. Film. Yeah, yep. So that that's that's my all-time favourite. So yeah, basically, um, yeah, I, I suppose someone that uh, got wrongly accused and yes. uh, yeah, the triumphs that, by the end. So yeah, I think I don't know if you ever caught the series Prison Break. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah. That was the brainchild. I think from Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, yeah. You know, because I was hooked on Prison Break for sure. Uh, up until I think series three when they went to Panama and it got a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got, a, you got a bit. You got a bit funky after that one. Yeah. yeah. I, I, did, I did like the Prison Break series as well. So yeah, very no, good. That was a very, very smart season. And um, I suppose Law Abiding Citizen is a little bit um, yes. little, little bit along the same tracks as well. It so that, that's, 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 that's up there in my favourite films as well. So no, Definitely, definitely. Okay, and uh, music-wise, well, what is your uh, genre or genres that, you know, if, if you was to put your, you know, phone on shuffle as an example, what could we expect to hear? Um, you'd, you'd hear quite a bit of Queen. So I'm a bit of a Queen tragic. So yes. Um, did, yeah. did you see uh, the film Bohemian yeah, yeah. Rhapsody? Yeah, I've seen it several times already. So brilliant, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, so I, I was um, most probably a little bit before before my time because I was born in seventy five. But yeah, okay. But yeah, def, definitely a bit of a Queen tragic. Um, but also, also I suppose a lot of those, um, oh, I suppose more classic classic pop types type um, arrangements as well. So still like listening um, to Elton John. Uh, yes. You know, sort of that that sort of. I don't like the whole death metal and heavy metal, but sure. I, yeah. there's, there's there's odd odd bits and pieces <laughs> that I'll pick out of it because I do like the hilltop. Hoods, so okay, um, yeah. So, and what about like any like ACDC or no, uh, no? I, I, I said you, you can always bop along to those, sure, yeah, bop along to them, but sure. yeah, I, I, I suppose I'm most probably more your classic rock more so than your yeah. um, heavy rock and heavy metal. So, and that can be a bit extreme, can't yeah, it? Yeah. Definitely, but I'm glad you said Queen because uh, when I was on the way to the Philippines with my, my wife and my children, it was one of the films that, were, that was on the plane. I watched it and I couldn't believe how they were portraying you know, um, Freddie Mercury in particular and then if you've seen the Live Aid 
concert and yeah. you can see how to, uh, the film caught it and then there's a YouTube video on there where you can actually see the live performance by Freddie Mercury in the uh, the film's take on it you just think wow it's just yeah yeah it, it sort of encapsulates what it, what it you know how special Queen were and how significant they were you know so yeah. no, very good and um, okay as we draw to a close just a couple more quick questions then what does the future hold for Asian Hoffman and Dim Church Vineyards? Well, I don't think I don't think things are going to change too much um, for uh, Dimchurch Vineyards or for or for myself. Um, you know, I was most probably very fortunate in my uh, years that my dad handed over the reins to me very early. A lot of a lot of um, I suppose grape growers and farmers they hang on to their property for a long time and then their sons don't become as interested. Um, my my plan would be um, you know as soon as my son's willing and able when he and he really wants to take the bull by the horns, um, I'll sort of hand him hand hand that on to him and. Um, I most probably can spend a little bit more time um, travelling and um, selling the wine while I'm, you know, young and fit enough too. Yeah, and yeah. you know, if I can spend my year, rest of my years chipping weeds in the vineyard and pottering around the vineyard, or um, I always liked, uh, always liked having a veggie patch. But you know, in the last ten years, I most probably haven't had the time or anything to do that. Sure. So um, if you know the sun takes on the vineyard, <coughs> I can most probably start up a bit more of a veggie patch again and oh, and, and chip around in that and grow Definitely. a bit of my own produce again. So. All right, and uh, lastly as well, of course, um, with what's been happening in Australia, um, for someone like yourself, wh- where would you recommend someone like ourselves, our viewers, our listeners, to, to recommend to? Is there a specific uh, organisation over in Australia um, that you know the money would definitely go to who would need the help? Is there a specific? I think I think the uh, the Red Cross Foundations um, and, and the Salvos, I think they're the, they're the ones, they're, they're the organisations that will actually get get the money to the people that are actually required and and uh, will actually need need this need the support. I think I think the biggest thing for um, especially in the bushfire and the bushfire appeals, it's not it's not what's going to happen in the next you know three three months and six months. You know, commu- whole communities are going to have to be rebuilt. So and that's going to take you know years and years mm. and years. Um, um, and that's going to take a big policy policy change from I suppose government and how the government um, reacts. Um, and you know we've got a three-tiered government system in the, in in Australia as well, right. but I think I think the big biggest support that you can actually give um, give to those communities is in most probably you know two, three, four years time is actually uh, what we've been encouraged to do as Australians is actually get back into those communities and spend money within those communities okay. because when you when you start spending money within those communities, they'll they'll then they'll distribute the funds, they'll get to employ people, yes, they'll keep people within the communities because the hardest thing in Australia. Australia in general is the support of rural communities and keeping people in the country. You know, we're all going to very centralised populations, whether it's in the big cities, whether it's Melbourne or Sydney or Brisbane. Yes. Um, but to keep people in those rural communities, I think, is very important. And the one thing you can do from a um, from a support point of view is actually go visit those communities, stay within those communities when you know when you come to Australia. You know, the big draw card is always Sydney and Melbourne. Um, but yes. you know, when people come out to the Barossa or go into the Adelaide Hills, you know, they you know they're Money that comes in and the mo- their money that gets spent, you know, basically triple triples in the economy because it gets spent in that business. That business that will then spend it within the community, and then that and then the community will spend it again yes. going forward. So that that's really where the support is going to come from, and it's most probably not this year or the next year. Um, especially, you know, I, I you know, hopefully the hopefully my wife's not listening and she ho- won't hold me <laughs> this to this, but you know, definitely most probably in two two years time, sure, you know, get back onto Kangaroo Island. Um, you know, if we can do it earlier than that, but there's a lot of rebuilding to be. 
done there, but to yeah. support our local community and, and going there and actually visiting and spending some of our money there and, and on, on the island, on the community, and they'll... They'll, they'll work their way through it and just to show that they have the have the support of people um, I think is really important oh, brilliant brilliant it's always good to give back isn't it yeah. definitely for sure but um, fine well Adrian thank you very much once again uh, enjoy the rest of your stay here in the UK and throughout Europe and many more safe travels and that's it from me today on behalf of Coles Boutique so until then uh, all the best thank you see you next time